You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. We've been considering the issue of respecting or disrespecting fellowship distinctions within the context of correctly applying the divine principle of separation, recognizing we have both separation to and separation from responsibilities in the context of both the unenlightened community and the enlightened community. We noted the four particular challenges the future saints within the enlightened community face at this time. Uh, First, that all three of the historical expressions of understandings about the qualifications for required attendance at Christ's judgment are either incomplete or absolutely false, as in the third understanding. Uh, We addressed this issue in the previous class. The second, that the presumed definition of terms like unity and peace that are being used today are exactly the opposite of how God defines these terms in Scripture and creation, both of his avenues of testimony. We began to review this challenge in the previous class, and we'll be continuing in this particular challenge in this class. Thirdly, the odd, highly unscriptural presumption of almost universal divine acceptability of the enlightened community. And fourth, denying the necessary three-dimensional nature of all divine testimony. We've considered items one and two, began to look at that third challenge. Uh, We considered how um, our enlightened community has been almost exclusively parallel to the most positive applications of the enlightened community throughout Scripture, distancing ourselves from identifying our enlightened community with elements such as Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and the entire Jewish nation, who, just like us, qualify are qualified as being enlightened and in a covenant relationship with God. We also began referencing some of the uncomplimentary prophecies about our exact last generation of the ecclesial age that are often dismissed as not possibly referring to ourselves, uh, therefore making the exact same mistake every other generation of the enlightened community has made at a point where God's judgments were about to be imposed. In fact, both Peter and Jude reference most of the examples we highlighted in their warnings about corrupting influences operating from within the enlightened community. This was the case with the judgments resulting from the equality rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, when about 15,000 Christadelphians were killed by one of three divinely imposed execution methods, uh, earthquake, fire from heaven, and thirdly, plague. There is also the judgment due to the spies' report. There was no fear of God's judgments for refusing God's gift of the promised land. The two destructions of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and then the Romans are also examples. Interestingly, there's a double feature to both of those destructions. The Babylonians defeated Judah and took thousands of captives to Babylon, but when Zedekiah rebelled, They came back and destroyed the city, the temple, and broke down the walls, uh, with the few being taken to Babylon 
um, redeemed and, and taken out of the destruction, and then the destruction in the second stage. The Romans, under Vespasian, encircled the city, but pulled back when word came that Emperor Nero was dead. In the spring, and then in the spring of the year 70 of the common era, the, the army returned under the leadership of Titus, uh, who was Vespasian's son. We considered the parallels that Jesus identified with the last generation of the enlightened community to um, the generation at the point of the flood and also the destruction of Sodom. We also considered how the Apostle Paul defines us in the last days in his letter, his final letter in 2 Timothy. Now let's listen again to how Jesus defines our current generation in Revelation 3. This is the seventh ecclesial letter from Jesus. The context we have to accept is that all seven letters have a prophetic nature. That's absolutely required due to the precedent that's explained in the first three verses of the book. In Revelation chapter 1, we read that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. The entire book of Revelation qualifies as a prophecy, things that would have to come to pass. Therefore, the seven letters to the Ecclesias would certainly have an application at the time that John wrote the Revelation, but would also have to have a prophetic application as well. We can't base our conclusions on anything in this book that contradicts Christ's testimony that this revelation he had his angel deliver John to John all has a prophetic application. The second context issue to the very easy prophetic placement of that last ecclesial letter to the Laodiceans um, is the, uh, uh, that this letter, that immediately following the, uh, this letter is the prophecy of the introduction of the Millennial Kingdom with that vision of the four living creatures and the 24 elders who identify themselves as having been redeemed to God by the blood of Christ out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and there'd be kings and priests who will reign on the earth. It is the last of the necessary prophetic seven ecclesial letters that immediately precedes this prophecy of the introduction of the millennial kingdom and then the opening of the seven seals. Before the sounding of the seven trumpets, we have another vision of the introduction of the millennial kingdom. Before the pouring out of the seven bowls or vials, we, all, we have another vision of the millennial kingdom. And just like the other three sets of seven openings, soundings, and pourings, we have a vision of the Millennial Kingdom in Revelation 1, just before the seven ecclesial letters. The pattern fits perfectly to offer a stone foundation for recognizing that last ecclesial letter to Laodicea as applying to the last stage of the ecclesial age, just before the restoration of the kingdom of God, which is exactly our generation. 
Another confirmation for applying the prophetic timing of this last ecclesial letter to our generation is the timing identification in this letter that Jesus declares he is standing at the door and knocking. This describes the context of an arrival, his return to the enlightened community. We, we certainly hear Jesus knocking. Our community is absolutely fixated on the signs of the times and the return of Jesus. He's certainly knocking. Let's use those ears that hear Jesus, advising us to exercise those ears in his concluding statement in his letter to us. So in Revelation uh, chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, the seventh letter. And unto the angel of the ecclesia of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of all of these creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither hot, cold, nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say, I'm rich, increased with goods, have need of nothing, and know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich, and white raiment, that you may be clothed, and the shame of your nakedness does not appear. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in unto him and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the ecclesias. There's certainly a significant degree of divine unacceptability expressed in the previous six ecclesial letters as well. But this letter to Laodicea is very descriptive of an attitude of ecclesial laziness and being spiritually unmotivated. The one comforting issue in applying this prophetic letter to our generation is that it does not have to be universal. The exhortation Jesus offers is for individuals to overcome in verse 21. He also counsels us each to buy gold from him so that we might truly be rich and to buy clothing so that we won't be spiritually naked before God and I solve in order to see better than the rest of the enlightened community. We personally are being called by our Messiah to rise above this definition of our last generation of the enlightened community. Let's just understand that this This zealousness will make us a target, as it has in all previous generations of the enlightened community, beginning with Abel. We are not free to define our level of perspective, divine acceptability, on the basis of how other Christadelphians see us, just as Jesus was not emotionally crippled by the fact that absolutely not a single person in the entire enlightened community of his generation actually believed him 
when he said that he would die, but would come back to life at the end of three days. The only people waiting outside his tomb when he was raised first back to mortality were those Roman soldiers assigned to guard his dead body. The women who loved him arrived late on the Sabbath day, just before the beginning of the first day of the week at evening, but only to apply burial spices that they had bought Friday morning and prepared Friday afternoon, as Mark and Luke testify. They had zero expectations of seeing Jesus alive again. Even the growing reports of the resurrection of Jesus uh, in the next few hours were met with strong resistance by even the closest disciples of Jesus. It was a very good thing that Jesus never imagined his level of acceptability to God could be calibrated by his level of acceptability by the enlightened community. The same has to be true for ourselves as well. That's the invitation that Jesus presents to us in this rather depressing prophetic letter to our exact generation of the enlightened community. We can individually step outside this extremely negative community characterization, but this will take spiritual energy and commitment and the foundational recognition that we had better improve our spiritual standing before our God and our Messiah, because the default community presumption of almost universal divine acceptability is completely false. We've noted the pattern of how there is always a poor spiritual condition for the enlightened communities demonstrated at every point of a significant divine judgment that's presented in scripture, such as the flood and Sodom and the judgment of the more than 600,000 men of war wanting to return to Egypt rather than inherit the promised land. Only, only Joshua and Caleb, out of the vast number of brethren in the truth, would be permitted to enter the promised land. The Babylonian Roman destructions of Jerusalem demonstrate the same pattern. Our generation is facing the next divine judgment. This judgment will result in either eternal life or eternal death. Jesus makes it clear that this same pattern will be evident at his judgment that we're about to face. Jesus presented a number of parables about his judgment at the conclusion of two different judgment parables, Jesus made the same absolutely chilling warning. At the end of Christ's parable uh, for paying all his workers a single denarius, a penny, a uh, day's wages, no matter how long they had worked, he declares in Matthew 20, Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. It is absolutely amazing to see how this last warning is consistently ripped from its context and reversed to indicate how gloriously wonderful we presume ourselves to be to God. While the context demands that we understand the called to be those called to the judgment, and the few being chosen are the few who are actually chosen by Christ to inherit immortality at that judgment, we oddly hear the dominant understanding 
that Jesus is suggesting that we have been divinely chosen for enlightenment, singled out from the vast hordes of the unenlightened to be blessed with enlightenment. But this is, this is not a preaching parable. This is a judgment parable. That violent ripping of this warning from the, from the context to corrupt its application, to mean exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying, is an exercise of that deceitful heart that God tells us through Jeremiah is desperately wicked. The same warning is expressed at the end of yet another judgment parable. At the conclusion of Christ's parable of the wedding of the king's son, we have this same warning after the man without a wedding garment is bound and ejected. In Matthew 22, uh, at the conclusion of the parable, then said the king to his servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. How could anyone justify that phrase? in that judgment rejection context as some kind of glorious affirmation of our absolute wonderfulness to God is absolutely amazing to me. That level of self-imposed blindness is just stunning. Our next point of divine judgment will be that substance casting the shadow of the denarius payment parable for our labors in Christ's service, it will be the literal wedding of the King's Son, of God's Son. The invariable scriptural pattern is going to be exactly the same. There will be a dominant application of divine unacceptability, and certainly not this odd, unscriptural presumption frequently being expressed in our enlightened community of an almost universal level of divine acceptability. Salvation is not nearly as easy as is being often presented, even in the enlightened community. Our third dimension in exposing this odd, false presumption of, of almost universal divine acceptability in relation to disrespecting fellowship distinctions is recognizing a unique fraternity of generations to which we personally belong. There are four transition generations when the plan of the Creator progresses from one divinely appointed dispensation to another. Uh, scripture ref uh, sometimes refers to these dispensations as ages, as when Jesus warns of the possibility of the unforgivable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Uh, he warned... Uh, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy of the, uh, against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto them. And whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. Neither in this age, neither in the age to come. These two ages were the beginning of the ecclesial age when the miraculous powers of the Holy Spirit were invested in the enlightened community for exactly two generations. And the second age is about to begin 
with the Millennial Kingdom age. We can define a divinely appointed age by three conditions. There is a change in divine laws and rituals. There is also a change in the divinely appointed priesthood. And then there's also a very public outpouring of miraculous divine power uh, that validates these changes as being divinely imposed and appropriate. The first age transition took place at Sinai under the direction of Moses. There were many new laws and rituals, worship patterns, and structure were introduced. There was also a newly appointed exclusive priesthood. Uh, during the patriarchal age, it was the heads of the households, the patriarchs, who performed the work of the priest, building altars, offering sacrifices to God, directing their family in worship and understanding God. In the first kingdom age, Aaron was appointed as high priest, and only his physically flawless sons between the ages of 30 and 50 years old could serve as priests. That rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram was a rejection of Aaron, the appointment of Aaron and his sons as exclusive priests. God's response was one of those highly public demonstrations of power in, the, in that surgical earthquake, uh, the fire from heaven, and the plague. The second transition generation began at Jerusalem, as opposed to near Sinai, uh, with the ecclesial age, where laws and rituals once again changed, and a new priesthood was established within an immortal high priest. But just like the last two ages, it's the sons of the high priest, or patriarchal family head uh, priest, that serve as priests. And just like the previous age, we see two structural layers in the divine service application. In that first kingdom age, there were priests and Levites, each with their specific roles to fulfill. In the ecclesial age, that dual application is separated by gender, with brethren performing the leadership or headship tasks and sisters performing support tasks, all in the service of our high priest, Jesus Christ. The priesthood ident identification of the ecclesial members is why Peter defines the brotherhood, our brotherhood, as a royal priesthood. It's why Jesus defends his disciples picking and eating grain on a Sabbath by paralleling them to the priests who profaned the Sabbath with their work, but were guiltless. And also how Paul repeatedly parallels the ecclesial brotherhood to the previous priesthood age and the works performed by priests. The qualification for priesthood in the ecclesial age is the same as the previous two dispensations, being the children of the high priest or the family priest, because at baptism we qualify as the children of the high priest, Jesus Christ, and therefore qualify as inheriting the assignment of serving as a priest during our ecclesial age. As with the first transition from one age to the next, there was also a tremendous, very public outpouring of divine power. The Holy Spirit gifts were even uh, expressed as temporarily serving as an educational tool to shepherd the enlightened community into that third divinely appointed dispensation with all of its dramatic changes in laws and rituals and a new educational focus. We are that third transition generation.
we'll witness the conclusion of the ecclesial age in this generation and the introduction of the millennial kingdom age. Or we could also call it the second kingdom age. Uh, there will again be a change in divine laws and rituals. There will again be two layers of priestly structure with both immortal priests and mortal priests. This time the public outpouring of divine power will be even greater than the last two age transitions with the educational capacity of these public demonstrations of God's power being global, not regional. And not just one man being immortalized, but many people like Abraham and Moses and David and Peter and Paul and so many others and hopefully ourselves as well. There will be a fourth and final transition. Uh, this will be from an age into a non-age state. Now, an age indicates a time-limited range from one point that qualifies as one age to another, a beginning and an end. But the final transition uh, to take place in that eighth divine day, not the seventh, after the conclusion of the millennial kingdom, this will be forever, when God will be all in all, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. It will not qualify as a mere age. It's the conclusion of the Creator's plan, with the elimination of death and therefore sin. The grave is cast in the lake of fire, which is interpreted for us as representing the second death, that forever death. Recognizing these four ages divinely appointed dispensations, interestingly parallels the four letters in the name of God, Yahweh, with the second and fourth letters being the same, similar to how the second age and the fourth ages both qualify as the kingdom of God, the first and the restored kingdom of God. Well, anyway, the, the recognizing those four distinct divine dispensations, those four ages, is just the first step. Now we consider the four transition generations. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, of the enlightened community being directed to accept a completely different frame of worship and a very different divine educational focus. The first two dispensation, uh, dispensation transitions were highly resisted by the enlightened community. In fact, all four transition generations bridging those divinely appointed ages share one common feature. All, all have been or are prophesied as demonstrating a dominant degree of divine unacceptability without exception. The first generation witnessing the end of the patriarchal age and the introduction of the first kingdom age was condemned to die in the wilderness without actually inheriting the promised land. The second transition generation suffered the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem with over a million of, of them dying at the hands of the Roman army and so many others were taken to the slave market in Egypt that the slave market actually collapsed, which is exactly what God prophesied in detail in Deuteronomy 28 in the blessings and the cursings. Uh, at the end of the chapter, he says, and the Lord God shall bring you into Egypt again by ships 
By the way thereof I spake unto you, you shall see it no more again, and there you shall be sold unto your enemies, for bondmen and bondwomen, and no man shall buy you. Ours is the third transition generation in this highly specific fraternity. We've already reviewed the prophecies of Jesus and Paul and John identifying the highly unacceptable uh, state of the enlightened community as a whole at this point that Jesus Christ will return to restore the kingdom of God. The fourth and last transition generation will be after the conclusion of the millennial kingdom. Of course, that, that eighth divine day, that eighth millennium. God's plan extends beyond 7,000 years. If the plan of God was only 7,000 years, then God would end up a complete failure, which is impossible. It's in that eighth divine day, after the millennial kingdom substance, casting the Sabbath observance shadow has concluded. And then we read of a massive rebellion. Revelation 20, beginning at verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as a sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. <laughs> kind of a, a reverse Jericho effect. Um, now who could these rebels be? Uh, could they possibly qualify as the unenlightened, like most of the world today, without any understanding about the terms of our greatest righteousness, uh, Jesus and the immortalized saints will have governed and educated the entire population of the world for a thousand years. Can we really be so disrespectful of Jesus Christ to presume that anyone in the world could possibly qualify as being unenlightened after a thousand years of global education and direct management? The point is that this fourth and final transition generation exactly fits the same invariable pattern at the point of an age transition, a dominant level of divine unacceptability in the enlightened community. There are four transition generations of the enlightened um, community that have or will experience a significant change in the structure of the unfolding plan of God. We're the third of those four transition generations. So yes, on the basis of all these considerations, we can very confidently reject the odd and highly unscriptural presumption that the salvation of Christadelphians is just short of a universal acceptance. This illegitimate presumption of divine acceptability is the sand foundation for dismissing the significance of fellowship distinctions, which is a demonstration of the separation from category of the divine principle of separation. Now we need to consider the fourth challenge that we noted that our enlightened community currently faces in this environment, promoting the disrespect of fellowship distinctions, and that is denying the necessary three-dimensional nature of divine testimony. Again, we're considering the challenges that we face 
incorrectly understanding the terms of God's righteousness in the context of fellowship distinctions. This fourth challenge is an absolute rejection of the common mistake of presuming the simplicity of God's testimony. This particular challenge is counterintuitive to the natural thought process. We, we want things to be simple and easy. This is the instinctive presumption of the human heart. Of course, what God declares to be the most deceitful influence in all of our existence, our Creator's testimony is not simple, not supposed to be simple, unless we inappropriately oversimplify it. The way to achieve the harmony, that peace, that multitudinous singularity we pursue with God is through spiritual balance. We briefly considered this issue when we addressed whether the prime motivation of our Creator in the development of the saints is quantity or quality. We determined that God wants better servants as opposed to more servants. We don't want to make the same mistake as the scribe and Pharisee divisions of the enlightened community that Jesus condemned for their preaching focus that did not develop quality. Two days before the enlightened community orchestrated his death, Jesus provoked the leaders of the national ecclesia with eight woes. The third woe of Jesus uh, declared, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he's made, you make him twofold the child of hell than yourselves. <laughs> the scribes and Pharisees focused their proselyte development, their preaching focus, on quantity, not quality. We should not make the same mistake. We also reviewed the undeniable observation that God imposes an intentional complexity um, in both of his avenues of divine testimony, with very rare exceptions, such as uh, Moses and Jesus, to whom he communicated directly without those dreams and visions and parables and, and what God calls dark sayings. Everyone else, ourselves included, have to sift through that intentional complexity. The particular challenge is the naturally deceitful heart with its extreme preference for simplicity and easy, comfortable solutions. It's like trying to run a race with our feet tied together. Now, there are endless examples of how this oversimplification challenge hobbles our thought process in spiritual matters in our current generation of the enlightened community and in the development of fellowship distinctions over the last 150 years. Jesus defines this oversimplification process as straining at a gnat while being able to swallow a camel. And that was, the, uh, was in the fifth woe that Jesus declared on that 12th day of Nisan at the temple when he publicly insulted so severely the leaders of the enlightened community. In Matthew chapter 23, uh, Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe and mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done and not leave the other undone. You blind guides, 
would strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Jesus points out they would focus on tiny little insignificant issues while ignoring huge issues. That is the absence of spiritual balance. An example of this in the context of fellowship distinctions would be the original, original reasoning that prompted the BASF amendment. Brother J.J. Andrews insisted that the condemnation in Eden was not a physical condemnation, but a legal condemnation. <clears throat> this foundational mistake led to the further mistake of presuming that one had to be baptized to eliminate that legal Edenic legal condemnation in order to qualify for the resurrection to judgment. One mistake was the precedent for the other. This is the problem with lies, or perhaps more politely expressed, incorrect understandings, is that one cannot stand alone. They multiply. One lie, or incorrect understanding, always leads to more and more. Correction is the only way to stop the dominoes from continuing to fall. That insistence on a legal condemnation was based on the presumption that man was already in a dying nature when God threatened him with death. That's an absolutely impossible presumption and very insulting to God, and yet it's frequently taken for granted. This was the case in a series of atonement articles published by the Tidings magazine about eight to nine years ago. The statement was made by the author in response to an objection uh, from a previous Tidings editor that we don't die because of Adam's sin, but because of our own transgressional sins. Uh, that response is provided on the slide, uh, declaring that if we died because of Adam's sin, that that would declare God to be unrighteous. And additionally, that sinless babies die because of transgressional sins they, they would have committed if they had lived longer. So I wrote to the Tidings editor, both defending the previous magazine editor's objection and also highlighting the ungodliness of that rejection of God's righteousness. And we, we defend those we love. If we don't defend those we love, when their integrity, integrity is attacked, then either we do not love or we are simply cowards. A part of the reasoning uh, that was presented uh, in the um, objection to that uh, ungodly, uh, those ungodly thoughts was, to, was that it was a contradiction of Article 5 of the BAS, BASF, that Adam broke this law and was adjudged unworthy of immortality and sentenced to return to the ground from whence he was taken, a sentence which defiled and became a physical law of his being and was tr transmitted to all his posterity. That clear statement is that death became a new physical law in the nature, the physical state of being of Adam, and also that this constituted a defilement. That presumption that death was already part of that very good creational order prior to the corrupting introduction of sin is that false presumption that affects everything else in the Bible, 
in some way or another, because God's testimony is a single unit, a multitudinous singularity that demonstrates the true application of the principle of harmony. In fact, Adam and Eve were in a non-dying state prior to sin. Certainly, certainly not immortal, as that indicates a complete incapacity to die. But in order to qualify for a very good divine approval for all of creation, death could not possibly have been part of that pre-sin creational order. There's a great many unclean and physically unacceptable conditions, at least from a divine perspective, in our current sin-cursed natural order that were a direct result of that first contradiction to God's righteousness that changed everything in the creational order, or what's so disrespectfully referred to as, as nature so often today. In the same one thing affects everything principle, we see how God cursed the earth, and that automatically extends that curse to everything else because the earth touches everything. We read in Genesis 3, and to Adam, Adam he said, Because you have hearkened unto the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face shall you eat bread, till you return unto the ground, for out of it you were taken for dust thou art, and unto dust you shall return. The ground was cursed. Now, one of the issues that we reviewed in reference to uncleanness by touch was that it was a contagious condition. Uncleanness was a physical state of divine unacceptability, which is obviously not a condition that could be possibly be part of what God declared to be very good, as in prior to the creation-corrupting effect of that first sin? When we considered the spiritual lesson of the current pandemic, uh, we reviewed the rules for touching under the laws of the kingdom of God. It was not simply ungodly behavior that's unacceptable to the standards of God's righteousness. There is a physical application to divine unacceptability, as well as a behavioral application. One requires repentance, the other requires cleansing. Adam and Eve were not simply commanded not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. According to Eve, in all her innocence uh, at that time, without any capacity for deceit, she declared in Genesis 3, uh, and the woman said unto the serpent, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Merely touching that tree would result in that death sentence being imposed by God. Doesn't that sound familiar to the warning that God issued through Moses after Israel accepted his offer of an everlasting covenant? Israel was instructed to come to the Holy Mount after two days, and God would address them directly. They were warned not, even, not to even touch the Mount, and that if a man or even a beast merely touched the Mount, that they would have to be executed. We reviewed that event 
when we were considering the considerable pattern of evidence indicating that the second immortalization event in our Creator's plan will be two divine days after the first. 2,000 years from that um, year 30 of the Common Era when Jesus was resurrected twice. First to mortality on that seventh day, and then to immortality on the next and therefore eighth day, which was, of course, also a first day of the week, where they were Alpha and Omega. Uh, just as man or beast would be killed for touching the burning mountain, so all living creatures suffered the curse of death when Adam and Eve not only touched the forbidden tree, but ate its fruit. Similarly, we see how man and beast were saved together on Noah's Ark, when God's judgment was death for everyone outside that salvation ark. Also, when death, that last enemy of the Creator's plan, is eliminated in the eighth divine day, all of creation will be saved, not just mankind. There will be nothing in earth or heaven, behavioral or physical, that will present any contradiction to the terms of our Creator's righteousness, as God will be all in all. So, since God cursed the ground, which is exactly what a human corpse becomes, therefore anything touching that God-cursed ground is therefore similarly divinely unacceptable. And anything that touches anything that touches that ground, that earth, is similarly divinely unacceptable by the terms of the kingdom of laws of the kingdom of God. That includes everything in our entire environment. I mean, what is it that doesn't touch the earth? Even our atmosphere touches the earth. All bodies of water touch the earth. So do we see how it is a divine principle that one thing affects everything? Therefore, if we start with a false presumption, such as the mistake that death was actually a component of the very good precursor creational order, then everything that inappropriate presumption touches is automatically corrupted. This is a feature of the principle of God manifestation and that three-dimensional harmony in all of God's testimony. A very defining statement in this issue of the pre-sin creational order being very different from the post-sin creational order is how Jesus refuses the lesser de designation of merely qualifying as being good. In Matthew 19, we read, And behold, one came and said to him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, and that's God. Since the best component that the post-sin creational order has ever seen, the Son of God, refuses to even be addressed as merely good, and not even very good, as in God's approval status of the pre-sin creational order, then what in this post-sin creational order could ever be defined as being very good by God? Obviously, there had to be a massive degrading of the creational order, that physical condemnation when that first sin corrupted everything in the entire creational order, which no longer qualified as being very good by the creator's standards. 
but actually sin-cursed. One thing affects everything. Therefore, we are not free to separate out issues and think that we can consider things like forgiveness without balancing that with judgment. We're not free to consider the principle of grace without the concept of accountability for our actions. We are not free to eliminate one of the always two aspects of every divine principle, as that always affects spiritual balance. We are not free to exclusively concentrate on imputed righteousness and simply dismiss personal righteousness. The truth is that any one mistake will always lead to more and more and more. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.